The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, <coughs> explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One's made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign, it's very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet and the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws. And he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours and take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're reading this morning out of uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as, your, as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How much do you actually trust God? I mean, how strong is your faith really? Are you willing to let God push you to your breaking point? Are you willing to let him show you all your deepest flaws? And how are you going to respond if and when he does? 
Sometimes the only way God can bring us to repentance is to force the issue, to make us confront the ugliness of our sin. And sometimes the only way God can grow our faith in him is to make us persevere in faith when even God himself seems hostile to us. So this story out of the Gospels, it really bothers us a lot when we read it. Uh, Because, I mean, to us, it makes Jesus seem kind of uncaring and, and a little cruel and somewhat racist. I mean, first he ignores the woman altogether. He only responds when the disciples complain that she's making the scene because that's what they're really saying is, Lord, she's annoying us and she's embarrassing us. Can you send her away? And he refuses to help her even then. And then he insults her, and it's only after she endures all that public humiliation that he finally does actually do what she's asking him to do and cast the demon out of her daughter. Right? And those are all kind of major problems. They're serious concerns. But the fact that we have those concerns at all, the fact that that story does not paint Jesus in the most flattering light at first glance actually is what guarantees the story's authenticity. You would not make up that story and then put it in the Bible if it wasn't real. It's genuine. So the bottom line is this story is in the Gospels. It is very certainly a genuine story of something Jesus actually said and did. And it's being reported to us by Matthew, who was one of the disciples who was there. So it's an eyewitness account. So we have to take it seriously, and we have to then think about it deeply. And we can start by reminding ourselves of everyone who is actually present in the story. See, we live in a society that's really individualistic, and so we tend to focus only on the people who are named or the people who have a lot of dialogue in the story. We kind of forget the other people. And we do this all throughout the Bible in almost every one of the, the major stories of the Gospels. We tend to forget that there is an entire community present. For example, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we forget that someone had to carry Lazarus to the rich man's gate every morning and carry him home every night because they're not named. But the original hearers would know. In this story, we tend to forget the disciples are there the whole time. They're there before they speak because they're hearing the woman crying out for help. But we tend to assume that like, they come and they make the complaint to Jesus and then they just sort of go away. We forget they're there the whole time, seeing what he does and hearing what he does. They're listening and watching the entire time. Which means also when Jesus is initially silent in response to that woman's calls for help, so are they. And that matters. They are in a a Gentile province, Tyre and Sidon are in what would now be Lebanon. So Jesus and his disciples are strangers here. They are very likely the only Jews in the city except maybe a few traitors passing through. This woman cries out, have mercy on me, which is like the standard cry of a beggar in the Middle East. And she's a woman talking publicly to a man. And even today, there are places in the Middle East where men and women only speak to each other in public if they are blood relatives. And in the first century, a Jewish rabbi like Jesus wouldn't even speak to a woman from his own family or even his own wife in public. So here's this woman, a Gentile, asking for help from a Jew, and that right there is a barrier you don't cross. But she's also a woman asking for help from a strange man, and that's another barrier you don't cross. But she is very bold. 
And she calls Jesus by his messianic title, the Lord, the Son of David. She knows exactly who she's dealing with. Somehow this Gentile woman from a Gentile province has heard about this Jewish rabbi who heals people and who has compassion and mercy on the poor and the sick, and she knows exactly who he is. And in response, Jesus is silent. But don't forget, he's dealing with two people here, well, two sets of people. He's got this woman, and he's going to test her faith. But he's also got his disciples, who he has to teach. They're both going to learn a hard lesson. And the thing is, we don't like hard lessons, right? You want the easy lesson. But a student who struggles through a difficult test and succeeds is a lot better off than one who skips the test altogether or who goes and seeks out something easier. So, back to the story. You have Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi and a prophet. He's in the area of Sidon. He's dealing with a Gentile woman whose child is in need of divine intervention. And if you've read the Old Testament enough, you might recall that centuries before this story, there was another Jewish prophet who traveled to Sidon and dealt with a Gentile woman whose child needed divine intervention, and his name was Elijah. And in his case, the woman's child died, and he raised that child back to life. And Jesus intentionally parallels that story here. Like Elijah, he's going, to test the <clears throat> he's going to test the woman's faith. The only real difference is this time his disciples are going to be able to observe everything he's doing and learn from it. And in the process, he's not only going to heal the woman's daughter, he's also going to immortalize her. Because by passing Jesus' test, she becomes part of a story that's going to be repeated every generation until the end of time. Now, again, in Jesus' day, no self-respecting rabbi is going to talk to a woman in public, especially not a strange woman, definitely not a Gentile woman, and absolutely not in public. So at first, when he ignores her, his disciples would have thought he's acting the way he's supposed to act, as a good, respectful rabbi. He would have appeared to be endorsing a view of society and women that they were very comfortable with. And not just women, but Gentiles too. But then they asked Jesus to get rid of her because she's annoying them and she's embarrassing them. And the first words Jesus says are to his disciples, not to the woman. He doesn't tell the woman, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He tells his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now the subtext there, this is a rhetorical way of Jesus saying, yeah, I know what my job is, or I know what you think my job is. Right? Of course, I'm a good rabbi. I have no time for Gentiles. I can't go around talking to women. But what he's really doing is he is naming and exposing their own prejudices. And at the same time, he's telling the woman, you're a Gentile woman, I'm a Jewish rabbi. Why do you think I should help you? And the woman doesn't leave. And the very fact that she doesn't leave means that she doesn't believe Jesus means what he's saying. She passes the first part of the test. She knows enough about who this Jesus is to know that what he's saying doesn't line up with who he is. She stays. 
And now the question is just how concerned is she for her child and just how much confidence does she have in the compassion and the healing power of Jesus? Because she's got to make that request again, even though it seems like he's just shut her down. And she makes this beautiful, very simple request. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Now, from the disciples' point of view, they have to be moved by this, right? Here you've got this desperate woman crying out for help, begging for mercy. Her daughter is in trouble. Exactly the same way that the widow cried out to Elijah for help. Now, the disciples know that story well because they're good Jewish boys. They know exactly what Elijah did. And now they see that this woman is desperate, that she is in anguish. And they have to be wondering now about their own attitudes towards these Gentile people and whether or not Jesus is going to break all of their taboos and all of their laws and help this woman. And the answer is, not quite yet. Because he's not done educating his disciples. He's going to take their ideas about Gentiles and about women, and he's going to drive them to their ultimate logical conclusion. The subtext of all this is Jesus telling his disciples, look, you'd be happy if I sent this woman away and limited my entire ministry to Israel. Well, okay, here's what that would actually look like. Here's how cruel that would actually be. Now, what Jesus says next, comparing her to dogs, is is a shocking and kind of horrifying thing for him to say to anyone, let alone to someone who is so desperate for help that only he can provide. But that's the point. He is expressing exactly the attitude that his disciples have in their hearts and the one that they assume that Jesus has too. He wants them to see and to hear for themselves how vile and how embarrassing their deepest prejudices really are. He wants them to face them because these are the men who are going to be responsible for spreading the gospel when Jesus is gone. He has to break them of that mindset that the gospel is only for the Jews, that it's only for God's people. He's making them confront the hardness of their hearts. Now, dogs in the Middle East and especially in the first century are despised. They're barely better than pigs. They're never pets. They're either half-wild guard dogs or they are dangerous street animals that scavenge for food. This is a terrible insult. And again, he's saying to the disciples, look, you think Gentiles are dogs, right? And you want me to treat them accordingly. Well, okay. This is what that looks like. Now, are you really okay with that? And for the woman, her test has come to the most challenging part. Because how is she going to respond to this? Because the temptation has to be to just give this insulting Jewish man everything he's given back to her. To insult him right back. He's humiliated her without any reason. What's she going to do? Will her love for her daughter and her faith in Jesus be strong enough to press on? And she responds by turning the insult around into this really clever, renewed request for help. She passes with flying colors. And for the disciples, what they see is they see that no one in Israel has this much confidence in Jesus. No one they know has the same level of faith in Jesus. Not even these incredibly harsh words from him can shake her faith in him. 
Her response here destroys all the prejudice that they have against Gentiles, and it helps set the foundation for a new understanding of who God is and to whom God will give his love. And the woman is shown to be mighty in her faith. She's willing to pay any price, even public humiliation, to receive the grace of God mediated by Jesus. All of us who have kids know that sometimes as a parent, you, you can't just give your child what they want right away, right? No matter how much you'd like to. Sometimes they have to earn it. Sometimes they have to do something to demonstrate why they deserve something good. But sometimes, sometimes they need to learn that they don't deserve it. Right? They need to learn why they're given good things. And they need to learn that sometimes the reason they're being given good things is just because their parents are generous. Not because they're entitled to it. And sometimes that's a painful lesson to teach. Jesus isn't being cruel to this woman. What he's doing is he's teaching her that she's not entitled to God's grace. And she can't earn it either. It's a free gift. And he's testing the depth and the strength of her faith. How much does she actually trust in him? Will her faith endure even when he seems to be unwilling to do what she asks? And the real lesson for this woman is that it's faith that matters and nothing else. And at the same time, he's teaching his disciples the same lesson while also confronting them with these ridiculous natures of their beliefs about Gentiles. He's breaking down the barriers that would prevent the gospel from spreading. Here's this Gentile woman you wanted me to ignore, to send away. But look, her faith in me is a lot stronger than yours. And if you put it in the context of the whole gospel, you start to wonder, would this woman have denied Jesus on the night he was arrested? Because if she perseveres through this, what else would she persevere through? Jesus doesn't make us earn things from him. He doesn't force us to jump through hoops to earn favors from God, but he does teach us. And sometimes if the methods he uses seem harsh, it's only because we don't always respond to gentler methods. This woman needed to know that it was her faith in Jesus and only her faith in Jesus that brought healing to her family. Because that's not how any other religion in the world worked. She needed to understand without any question that she hadn't bought her daughter's healing, she hadn't earned a favor, but that her willingness to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what, that her certainty in his character as a loving and merciful Messiah, despite all evidence to the contrary, is all that she needed. And the disciples needed to see in concrete terms the pure absurdity of what they'd been taught all their lives about their neighbors. Because otherwise, they'd never be able to carry the gospel to all nations. Strength and perseverance. We all have to embrace strength and perseverance as we follow Jesus. Because Jesus isn't interested in followers who will only follow him when times are easy. He wants us to have the strength to follow him in all circumstances. He wants us to have the strength to face our deepest flaws and the grace to repent for them. And he will put us in situations where we have to develop that strength and where we will have to persevere in our faith. Because the thing is, we're also going to face situations that are not from God that will require strength and perseverance in our faith. 
Things will happen. We will face loss. We will face suffering. There is evil in the world, and it seeks to destroy us just as it tried to destroy Christ on the cross. If Jesus doesn't help us grow in strength and learn to persevere in the faith, we'll be crushed. But if we let him teach us these things, we might still be crushed, but we will rise again with him afterward. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.